0: Welcome to the Independent Advisors Podcast, where we dive into the world of stocks, tradable markets, and financial planning with Jessup Wealth Management's Chief Investment Officer, Mark McEvely, and CEO, Matt Jessup. You'll hear tips, tricks, and strategies to address your financial well-being, and most importantly, conveyed in a way that everyone can understand. Here are your hosts, Mark and Matt. Hey,
1: everyone. Welcome to episode number 206 of the Independent Advisors Podcast, where Matt Jessup and I Mark McEvely bring you everything you need to know from the past week in the world of financial markets and financial planning. This week, again, I'm joined by our Director of Research and Trading, Nick Whitaker, to fill in for Matthew since he's out on business. So once again, good morning, Nick. Good morning. Um, been uh, pretty busy. I want to knock on wood when I say this, pretty smooth sailing month of June so far mm-hmm. uh, for the market and kind of the last half of, uh, of May there. So I think, you know, we're finally getting back into this lower volatility environment that we've all been yearning for for <laughs> quite some time. And I think I speak for, for everybody when I say this is, you know, at a certain point there, it felt like we were never going to get out of it, right? Right yeah it always feels like that in any kind of market
2: chop bear market um, it's just painful and people forget the good
1: times and really forget how long we had the good times it's mm-hmm. it's
2: tough it's part of it part of the so the, i
1: think the vix i saw something on twitter last night that the vix closed which is a, a measure of uh, volatility for the market over the next 30 days for people who are unaware Uh, It's the lowest reading since January of 2020, so pre-COVID, which uh, is a good thing in my opinion. Mm -hmm. So uh, before we begin, Nick, as always, just want to take the first few minutes to recap the performance for the month and the year of the major indexes that we track. And these numbers are as of the market close on June 21st. And as always, this data is from my charts. S&P 500 index up 4.4% for the month of June and up 13.7% for the year. Dow Jones Industrial Average up 3.2% for the month and up 2.4% for the year. The NASDAQ Composite Index up 4.4% for the month and up 29% for the year. The Small Cap Russell 2000 Index is up 6.3% for the month and up 5.9% for the year. And the Vanguard All World Ex United States ETF. Uh, is up 3.5% for the month and 8.7% for the year. Three-month treasury rate sitting at 5.4%, the two-year treasury rate at 4.68%, and the 10-year treasury rate at 3.72%. Moving on to big headlines, current events from the week. Uh, a little bit of economic data for you all is uh, housing starts and building permits. So. Uh, Total housing starts have surged uh, over 21% month over month uh, in April, and that is the strongest pace of starts since April of 2022. Total building permits also increased 5.2% month over month for April. Uh, And The key takeaway here, Nick, from this report is the monthly growth in the single unit permits, which is up about 5%, which is a leading indicator, uh, and single unit starts up 18.5%, which is a good sign for supply challenged housing market overall um, and seemingly uh, good for home builders' sales and earnings prospects. So, why are we bringing this up? Again, we have had a huge housing shortage for a very long period of time. So, we need to build more houses, right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, with the way the economy has been, with COVID, uh, it's been very difficult, mm-hmm. right? Um, So I think home builders are finally getting incentivized to ramp up building homes again. And I think we've seen that. And I think we talked about this a little bit earlier this year. And we kind of not forecasted or predicted that. But everyone was asking the question several months ago and towards the beginning of the year, why are home builder stocks doing so well? And it's Mm -hmm. like, okay, well, it might be forecasting that home building sector is going to do pretty well over the next couple of months or the next couple of years and I think we're starting uh, to see that here. And whenever people have the initial
2: thought, which is a very normal thought to have of well if there's a tight supply why wouldn't the home builders just go out and start building more homes, they'd make more money, etc, etc. Each home builder has to take care of their balance sheet, has to take care of their earnings, they have shareholders that they have to listen to and so there's, there's, when when there's economic strife or challenges in the economy, they're gonna be a little bit more reserved, they're gonna be a little bit more strategic, which is why you kind of have that tightness um, in this type of market environment. So these numbers are good to
1: see from a healthy economy point of view. Yeah, yeah, well said. Uh, The other big event last week was uh, Fed Chair Powell's testimony before Congress on Wednesday and Thursday. Um, Powell described an economy that is still strong with inflation running too high and repeated that most officials think that interest rates will continue to go higher, uh, to tame prices. But the latest inflation readings, Nick, uh, actually came down, came in lower than expected. So prices are coming in. Um, so I wonder, you know, how accurate his statement is going to be. And as we know, this stuff can change on a dime. So... Um, You know, obviously, they held rates steady uh, this month, but uh, that could change in July, August, September, October. So uh, we'll see. Kind of a wait and see. Last but not least, uh, student debt repayment. So the U.S. Department of Education says that student loan payments will be due starting in October of this year, and interest on that debt will begin accruing even sooner starting on September 1st. So supposedly, Nick, there was a law passed in Congress that is gonna make it more difficult to push this date back again like it has previously. Um, so they're saying this is, this is the final, final date, and this is where uh, people are gonna have to start repaying their student loans. So um, it, again, like I said, it's been pushed back several times uh, since COVID, um, so we'll see if that is true
2: have to keep an eye on retail sales to see if that number starts dipping any. Yeah, it's going to be interesting.
1: With the uh, student debt coming back. Yeah, good point. Uh, Moving on to tweets, articles, and research from the week. The first thing that I had was a tweet from Charlie Bilello on June 15th. And Charlie said that the S&P 500 is up 13.9% in the first 113 trading days of the year one of the best starts we've seen in recent history. And in the last 25 years, only 2019 and 2013 have had a better start. And Jenna will throw this graphic up for the YouTube listeners and put it in our show notes. Encourage you to look at it. It shows that we, you know, when we have a a really strong start to the first 113 trading days of the year, future returns tend to be very strong. Um, So you know for example like charlie said in 2019 and in 2013 uh, 2019 s p 500 was up just over 15 percent uh, to start the year and ended the year up just under 30 percent and then in 2013 s p 500 was up about 14.7 percent to start the year first 113 trading days Uh, finished the year, again, uh, up just shy of 30%. So I think this is one of these situations, Nick, where kind of strength begets strength. And just because the market entered a new bull market, we're making new 52-week highs, we've had a strong start to the year, I think automatically people are like, oh, well, you know, the rest of the year is going to have to be pretty weak, right? Because we're already above the average returns for over the past 50 years. But that just not necessarily is the case. So history shows us that uh, we could expect and it shouldn't surprise us if the market continues to do well through the rest of the year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Which, uh, which we love to see.
1: Next thing I had was a tweet from Todd Sohn on June 14th, and he is a strategist at Strategas. Um So this is a graphic that shows... Uh, fund flows. So how much money is going into uh, equity or stock ETFs? How much money is going into fixed income ETFs or bond ETFs? And then uh, finally, how much money is going into money market funds? So this shows pretty clearly, Nick, that you know, since October of 2022, the flows going into money market funds just drowned the flows going into fixed income ETFs and equity ETFs. And Todd said in his tweet, he said, equity bull market, but money market funds are really all the rage these days. So it just goes to show you how fearful people were and how long it's been since money market rates and interest rates were high enough to warrant people to want to buy them. Uh, This hasn't happened in quite some time, but I still think that there is a lot of you know, money on the sidelines, so to speak, in these money market uh, mutual funds, things like CDs as well and treasuries that eventually will find their way back into the stock market and, in my opinion, propel it higher long term. Um, but it's just interesting that we are still in, uh, you know, quote unquote, bull market right now, but the fund flows have gone primarily into money market funds. Yeah, that's interesting.
2: That's the the definition of cash on the sideline, and that's a great chart to follow on what we talked about last week with the heavy overweight to the fixed income uh, space. Right, from relative, B of a. Yeah. yeah, from B of A relative to equity. So when we talk about cash on the sidelines, eh, there it is. That's that's what we're talking <laughs> that's about right it. there. And when they're going to, you know, of course they could rotate back into fixed income, but most likely based on history and normal, modern portfolio theory, they'll rotate back into equities right. more, more likely. So there's there's that money on the sidelines.
1: And the last thing I had, Nick, was a research piece from Adam Turnquist at LPL about S&P 500 forward returns after the end of bear markets. Um, so again, kind of going along with what I was uh, talking about, my first item that I mentioned with Charlie Um, This chart shows, uh, if people are watching on YouTube or looking at the show notes, it shows the performance one month, three months, six months, and 12 months after the end of a bear market since 1949. And what it's gonna show, Nick, is the the average performance for the S&P 500 after the end of a bear market. So one month after the end of a bear market, average return is 0.6%. Three months after the end of a bear market, average return is 5.1%. Six months after the end of a bear market, the average return for the S&P 500 jumps to 12.7%. And 12 months after the end of a bear market, the average uh, performance jumps to 18.9%. And what's even more interesting to me, Nick, is that 12 months after the end of a bear market, the S&P 500 is positive or higher 92% of the time, uh, which is a pretty good hit rate. And there's not a whole lot of data here, so we just have to be careful with sample size. But um, if we're gonna side with history on this one, then I would think with all the other data that we've mentioned this week specifically and Mm -hmm. specifically over the past couple of months, um, that, again, should not be surprised if we had higher for the rest of the year.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting that uh, the, the column I'm focusing on is that recession overlap column. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. There's there's more no's in there than I would have thought. Right. Right. So, which, is, which we've talked about as well, that we could continue higher and not have a, a recession this yeah, year. Yeah, and I possible. think
1: for whatever reason, um, bear market is synonymous with recession for whatever reason, and that's right. just not really accurate. So we've had several recessions without a bear market and several bear markets without oh, a recession. recession yeah. um, so it is possible. And I've been pounding that table all year is mm-hmm. that even if we do go into a recession later this year, in my opinion, that was priced in in 2022 with stock prices. Absolutely. And it doesn't necessarily yeah. mean that if we have a recession, that the market has to fall by 20, 30, 40%. Um, yep. So uh, with that being said, Nick, I will turn it over to you.
2: Excellent. So I'm gonna start with some comments on June pricing. This is from briefing.com. And they say the following, the popular narrative is that the move by the broader market on Thursday, this is 6.15 is, when, uh, is what, what he's talking about. This, this piece was written on the 16th, last Friday. Uh, the popular narrative is that the move by the broader market on Thursday, up 1.2%. And the one seen throughout June, was fueled by a prevailing sense that the Fed is done, or close to being done, raising rates. For what it's worth, that move left the market cap-weighted S&P 500 trading at 19.1 times forward 12-month earnings, which is a 10% premium to the 10-year historical average of 17.3%, according to FactSet." So he's saying, for what it's worth, we're a little overvalued by historical metrics uh, after this run-up in June. Uh, And then they continue. There is some residual consternation about the multiple expansion in the face of a slowing, of slowing economic environment, yet money flows have been the stock market's friend as visions of a soft landing for the economy and a subsequent acceleration in earnings growth six months from now have seemingly overshadowed valuation concerns for the time being. I put this in the podcast just because I think it's a great recap of everything that's gone on, really year-to-date, but what's pushing the market, generally speaking, uh, particularly in June, and it it just gets down to everything that he's saying here, which is the market kind of seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with the Fed, the economy still hanging in there, and yeah, valuations are getting, you know, there's, there's going to be some conversations in the media, and, and people are going to talk about that a little bit, but the good news is outweighing that, which is why you're having a little bit of that multiple expansion. So what are, what are your thoughts on any of that or anything to
1: add? Yeah. The only thing I want to add here is that markets can stay overvalued for longer than you really think. Um, and one of my favorite quotes, and I forget where I hear this is that, you know, markets can stay overvalued longer than you can stay solvent. Right. And, I think that's really true. And I think last week we were talking about short sellers and you have people that are expecting the market to go down, you know, and they're continuously placing these short bets, expecting the market to go down because their main thesis is that the market's overvalued. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, But we've seen several times throughout history, the market be extremely overvalued and it just continues to go up and up and up. So um, just because according to whatever metric you're looking at, the S&P 500 is quote-unquote overvalued doesn't mean that the market has to come in. Right. Right. Absolutely. Or
2: anytime soon, yeah. Uh, the next piece I have is just reminding listeners on the big picture around inflation. This is a tweet from Game of Trades on uh, yesterday, actually. Um, and it's a, it's a chart from Fred on the personal consumption expenditures uh, excluding food and energy. Uh, and the uh, research says the following, inflation might be stickier than most anticipated. PCE inflation excluding food and energy is still at levels last seen in the 1980s. I wanted to bring this up, I saw this this week, scrolling on, uh, on our research sites, and I wanted to bring this up because we talked a little bit about inflation last week and uh, I don't want to get too positive for listeners. I want to remind the listeners about some of the narratives that were pretty prevalent a couple months ago, three, six months ago, and will m- very likely pop up again if inflation does not continue on this beautiful trend lower that it's been on. And I wanted to bring this chart back up and show listeners big picture we still are elevated on an inflation perspective one of the reasons the market has has moved higher and what i talked about in the last piece of research which okay inflation's coming down the economy's good rates are slowing and or stopping we see a light at the end of the tunnel from a market perspective it's because this trend is continuing and we can see that going lower with inflation that's very important for the market to continue to see where I think you'll likely have chop in the market is if these inflation numbers stop going lower. If that trend, uh, you know, if we have two, three months of inflation that's beating consensus, i.e. coming higher, consensus is shooting for 3.5, it comes in at 3.7, the market's not gonna like that, and that's where I think we could have some, some volatility and some chop, because if that's the case and Inflation is stickier um, and we see that narrative come back out. The Fed might have to step back in and hike again to try to get that ball rolling back lower. The key, the key r- level to, to look at is going to be around that two, two and a half percent range. I think if we can get to two and a half percent, I think we're fine. Of rest will take care of itself. But we're kind of at that make or break point where I think we could see some
1: chop if, if this trend does not continue lower. Right. And I think at least we're expecting this and I'm assuming others are expecting this. That over the next couple of months, there's going to be some pretty large inflation numbers from 2022 that begin to drop off. Right. Yep. So, you know, um, it would not surprise me if the trend of decreases in inflation um, slows down. Um, but overall, and I think the other thing here too, Nick is, you know, for the past couple of years, employees have had uh, really good, what I would call pricing power, right? So mm-hmm. they could ask for wages cause it was hard to keep people, uh, okay. hard to keep the good people, uh, for instance. And, um, you know, I think the thing that people were concerned about for a really long time is this, uh, wage price inflation spiral where inflation's going up, wages are going up, and people are like, hey, well, why is it a bad thing if wages are growing up? And it's because because there's people have more money to spend, right? And yep. if there's, again, a lot of people chasing not enough goods, prices are going to go up. That's yep. not going to be good for inflation. <laughs> um, so that's part of it as well is the, the Fed doesn't want to see, you know, wages continue to increase at the pace that they have been over the past couple of years because that's just going to perpetuate the problem and i know that sounds crazy that we're saying wage increases are a bad Mm -hmm. thing in a certain sense but um as it relates to inflation that's the point that they're trying to make yeah
2: yeah absolutely well well said and the last tweet i have is a fun one uh, we don't talk about this stuff that often, uh, so I thought I'd. It's always good when Chamath's involved yeah, in a conversation. I thought I'd mix it up a little bit. Um, so, dis- disclaimer here: uh, if there are any very uh, gun ho and 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 very strong, if you have strong feelings on climate change, you might not love this. In one way or the other. In one way or the other. Um, but this is from Chamath. I'm gonna try it. Uh, I
1: think that's pretty good
2: It's ha- better you trying to pronounce it than that but. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so it's a tweet from Chamath um, He's a CEO of Social Capital, a venture capitalist He was an early executive at Facebook Very smart guy uh, He does like to be in the spotlight So um, you know, take, take what he says with a grain of salt of course um, by no means am I saying I'm a, I'm a huge Chamath fan, but he is a very sharp guy. Uh, and he and he has a funny tweet here that I saw yesterday. And um, it starts with, he says, wow, nailed it. And he has taken a screenshot of, uh, of a tweet from five years ago. And this tweet is from another quite polarizing figure in climate change. Her name's Greta Thunberg. And I don't know how old she is now, but she was Pretty, pretty young. young, like not an adult. Um, like uh, Euro- European, Norway maybe, mm-hmm. uh, somewhere uh, Swedish, over there. Yeah. Uh, somewhere in the Baltics, I think. And she got a lot of uh, social media presence just from hammering the table. You know, again, a child like hammering the table about climate change. Anyway, she said this five years ago. Uh, "Quote: A top climate scientist is warning that climate change will wipe out." all of humanity unless we stop using fossil fuels over the next five years and chamath has uh circled the date on there which was uh, june 20 uh, 21 of 2018. he's and been sitting on this one a while he's been sitting on this <laughs> a while um and he says wow nailed it there's so much emotional hand-wringing and and alarmism over climate change when the most prudent way to view it is through the lens of national security. Show me a war involving the West uh, for the past 50 years, and I'll show you a fight directly or indirectly over natural resources, namely oil. The most important thing we are doing now for our national security is getting to energy independence through solar and wind, and the biggest biggest dividend it will pay will be in terms of peace. We will have abundant, near-costless, renewable, carbon-free energy within the decade, and stop getting entangled in wars near and abroad because of it. The climate will only be saved as well, or excuse me, the climate will be saved as well, but it will be as a byproduct to the economically and socially sensible thing to do. In fact, more laws have positively impacted the fight against climate change by explicitly not mentioning climate change. And then he lists a bunch of acts, uh, BIL, the CHIPS Act, Infrastructure Bill, Microchips, Inflation Reduction Act, he says, this may upset folks who want to martyrize climate change, but they should get over it and move on. Um, a Bit of a, a spicy take, particularly at the end, get over it and move on. Um, I get climate change, I get people feeling very strongly and passionate about it and wanting to do things and wanting to act, enact things now. Um, and it's an interesting take that Jamath has on the idea of national security, and that's a great way to uh, increase climate change. I think where I stand on it is uh, in in the realms of of capitalism and that climate change and ESG investing and all of that that type of uh, rage and uh, narratives, those narratives, I think it all comes back to capitalism as much as people, right? don't in that area don't want to admit that um, whenever capitalism can take control of it and change as it's already doing in the energy space um, then we'll start to see uh, the fruits of our labor so to speak that's kind of where I stand and then the last piece I'll say before I tossing it over to you is uh, I asked an economist about this like ten years ago I'm like oh what do you think about you know ESG and natural resources and you know is it going to be a problem and And his comment was was very succinct in that he said, I believe that by the time it becomes a problem, we will have an an innovative solution for that problem. It's like, that's just the way the world has worked for hundreds of years. Mm -hmm. And I I agree with him on that. And that kind of falls in that realm of, you know, capitalism will solve this whenever it needs to be solved. Um, So that's kind of the camp I suppose I sit in right now, but what are your thoughts? That was a lot.
1: Yeah, I um listen, I don't I don't think anyone that has knowledge about this stuff is saying that um, cleaner energy is a bad thing or renewable energy is a bad thing. I think we we can all agree that that's that would be great if we could it's do I- that. It's ideal. Right? Yeah. But the reality of it is, we're just we're not there yet to be fully dependent on that type of technology, right? Yep. So unless people want to live without energy until we get there, you have to continue to use the things that we've been using for several years. Absolutely. Um, that's my only piece that I'll say on that. The other thing with ESG investing, it's just it it's hard for me to get on board, Nick, because I think people pick and choose. Certain things when it relates to, like, the climate, for example. Um, But as I've said before, if you look deep enough, you can find something that doesn't fit ESG standards with every single publicly traded company. Absolutely. Um, You know, and a, a great example is you have these people that are, you know, pounding the table on ESG, climate change, or whatever they're passionate about. But most of us have an iPhone in our pockets, right? And do people know what it takes to create an iPhone and what resources have to be mined to make the iPhone work? And have they done the research on the human aspect of how that happens. I'm not going to get into it, but you see where I'm going. Or even the energy aspect, because they've definitely used fossil fuels to get the resources. So it's it's kind of, you know, I think people like to be in like the rah-rah, you know, part of a movement, which is fine, which is great. But I, I think sometimes we lose sight of everything else we use in our world today. Yeah. That is not necessarily the best thing for the environment, but people still use it. Um, so, it, you know, at the end of the day, it, this is going to be a conversation for a long time. It's not going away. I think I do not think the clean energy green movement, especially with cars, is going away anytime soon. And mm-hmm. I really do think that within the next decade or two decades, that is going to be a, a huge thing. I yeah. don't think that's going away. So, yeah. um, you but know, what, what, what did that take? Right. That was capitalism. Exactly. Right? I mean,
2: that was Tesla. Mm hmm falling under the pressure of Wall Street and yeah. Wall Street saying, this is what you have to do. You got to clean up your balance sheet. You got to prove that you can do this in mass. And mm-hmm. they did. And we've seen the, we've seen what Tesla has achieved. And that's not a recommendation for or against Tesla. That's just an observation.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. So. Well, Nick, thanks for uh, joining me on the podcast today. We are going to stub you out for Taylor to talk about estate planning for the financial planning topic of the week. Yeah. So Taylor Ledbetter is our uh, one of our wealth advisors here in the office, uh, one of our experts in financial planning. So Taylor, thanks for taking the time this morning to come talk to us about estate planning. Mm -hmm. So what specifically are we talking about today?
3: Yeah, so I wanna touch on estate tax and then specifically irrevocable life insurance trusts or islets. I've just heard it be brought up a lot on the podcast, but we've never had a segment fully dedicated to this topic.
1: Okay. All
3: right, so first I just wanna briefly kind of explain what the estate tax is, how it works. Um, So when an individual passes away, all of their assets are basically included in their estate, so cash, securities, insurance, annuities, real their estate, homes, yeah, cars, everything. Right. Mm-hmm. Now these assets are assessed at the fair market value as of the data passing, not what the asset was originally purchased for. Okay. And it's also important to note that anything left to a surviving spouse is not included in, in the that estate. person's estate because okay. um, there's an unlimited marital deduction. So that gets rid of a lot of assets already for a lot of people. Um, some other exclusions could be charitable donations or any debts, fees you owe. Now, in 2023, there is an estate tax exemption of $12.92 million. So what that means is if all of your assets in your estate are valued over that amount, you'll pay a 40% estate tax. Anything below that is not taxed at that rate.
1: Right. So it's any amount over $12.92 million will be taxed at the 40% rate.
3: Correct. Okay. Mm-hmm. And that limit is very high but it hasn't always been that high Um, so prior to 2017 that exemption was around the five million dollar mark wow Um,
1: less than half
3: yeah yeah it's been raised quite a bit so with the exemption being so high now people haven't really had to worry about going over that limit Now, it's important to bring up this topic because starting January 1st of 2026, that exemption amount is actually going to expire and it's going to drop back down to around that $5 million mark. Right. So a lot of people are going to be, or a lot more people be affected right and And have to
1: pay start paying the estate tax right oh yeah um yeah and and, you know this was a huge a huge jump and a huge part of the 2017 tax cuts and jobs act was um you know raising the estate tax amount um and especially in our industry which i think you're going to get get into a little bit here but you know we plan with our clients for the estate tax when they're still with us right because Mm -hmm. you know you have someone that has 20 million dollars that's a pretty big tax bill that you have to pay, so we wanna make sure that we're talking about that, discussing it, and it's important because I don't think a lot of people realize that it's set. the estate tax exemption is set to revert back to where it was before Mm -hmm. 2017.
3: Yeah, and I mean, it takes time to plan for this kind of stuff. So if you have a pretty high net worth and you didn't know this was gonna be changing, might make you a little bit nervous. Right. but there are some things you can do to minimize your estate tax. And that's where the irrevocable life insurance trusts come in. I don't think they're super common now, but I think they will be you know, starting in 2026. Right. So essentially how the islet works is you designate the trust as the beneficiary of your life insurance policy. And then, you know, once you pass, the trustee will manage those funds for your trust beneficiary. But, you know, life insurance payouts can be pretty high. Mm-hmm. So um, it could definitely throw you over a $5 million exemption amount. Mm-hmm. And I think it's also important to note that if you own the policy, maybe you're not the beneficiary, but if you're the owner, it is included in your estate. Okay. But if you are not the owner, maybe this, your spouse owns the policy on you, then it's not included in your estate because okay. you don't own that asset. Right. Um, so since the trust is technically irrevocable, you know, it can't be modified without the permission of a beneficiary because it essentially removes all ownership rights to assets in that trust. Um, there is one, I would say, kind of disadvantage to an islet, and I don't think it's talked about very much. So if you live three or less years after maybe transferring ownership of this policy to an islet, it's actually still included in your estate. There's a three-year rule.
1: Okay. So it's kind of mm-hmm. like a look-back period.
3: Yeah. Sort of. Yeah. Kind of like what Medicare does. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So I think that's really important to point out, too, because that's not really talked about either.
1: Right. And, you know, possibly starting right now, even if you got an islet, you know, today, Mm -hmm. when 2026 rolls around, that's not even going to be past the three year time period.
3: Right. So it's important to have these conversations ahead of time. Now, Yeah. So I think islets will kind of be the most popular way to minimize the estate or estate taxes, but there's also other things you can do. Um, so gifting assets away, it's good to get ahead of that. Um, for 2023, the annual gift limit is $17,000 per individual, um, or you can elect gift splitting with a spouse and gift up to $34,000 uh, per individual. Right. But that takes time too. You know, that's not a lot of money when the exemption amount is that high
1: exactly but
3: any little bit helps
1: right and um, just i think to clarify that for people taylor so me for example i can give seventeen thousand dollars to you i can give seventeen thousand dollars to jenna and i can mm-hmm. give seventeen thousand dollars to jack without incurring any uh gift tax penalties correct, correct? Mm-hmm.
3: Okay. yep um yeah, And another way you could just minimize kind of that estate tax is charitable giving. That's really popular, too. Um, There's donor-advised funds, which is essentially a giving account to make charitable contributions, um, and you receive a tax deduction for it. Right. So there's lots of things that you can do, but I think islets are what we're going to see the most of.
1: Yeah, I think so, too, and it's a good point to bring up, Taylor. Um, And I think another option uh, that we're going to see come back that was really popular when the estate tax exemption was lower is Second to die life insurance policies. Mm-hmm. So technically, it's you know, husband and wife have uh, a life insurance policy. When the second spouse passes away, that life insurance policy, the proceeds are used to pay for the estate tax too. Mm-hmm. So I think we're going to see a lot more of that as well. But um, yeah, this is something that I don't think a lot of people realize that. When it was implemented in 2017, it was scheduled to sunset in and mm-hmm. end of 2025, uh, beginning of 2026, so definitely something that we want to keep an eye on, and if you're someone out there um, that is going to have a estate that's worth more than $5 million, we should mm-hmm. probably start having these conversations now.
3: Exactly. So I thought it was important to bring it up and talk about it today. Yeah, <laughs> well...
1: I appreciate it, Taylor. Thank you as always for your knowledge and insight with our financial planning topics of the week. And for everybody else, thank you for listening to episode number 206 of the Independent Advisors podcast. Hope you all have a wonderful rest of the week and we'll talk with you next time.
0: There you'll find links to every episode of The Independent Advisors. Have questions or topics you want to discuss on the show? Message us on Twitter, LinkedIn, or send an email with the words questions and topics and the subject line to inquiries at jessupwealthmanagement.com. We'll talk about it right here on the podcast. Certain sections of this commentary may contain forward-looking statements based on reasonable expectations, estimates, projections, and assumptions. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of future performance and involve certain risks and uncertainties which are difficult to predict. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. No strategy can guarantee any objective or goal will be achieved.